From the book of Romans, chapter 8, starting at verse 18 to verses 39. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us, to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the what is in the mind of the spirit, because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
that passage in Romans 8, like, perfectly captures what we've been studying in the book of Daniel. And um, before we begin, we'll, we'll pray for Greg. He decided to take a sick day and get some rest. He wasn't feeling well today. So therefore, we're finishing chapters 5 and 6 of Daniel, which was not in my plan last week, but it was in God's plan. So, the sovereignty of God. There you have it, the end. But let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you for uh, Greg. We pray that you'd help him to feel well quickly. Amen. And Father, uh, we're but dust, and the best that we could ever bring to you in our own strength would be nasty and gross and um, really worthy of, of judgment. But in you we are holy, and in you we are clean, and in you we are capable of pleasing you. And in you we are able to bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise and good fruit and good works and acts of charity to the saints and acts of mercy to those who don't deserve it any more than we did. And so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that your anointing would be on us both here and in Bangalore. And we pray um, that you would bring us together, give us grace towards one another, and deep and rich and living hope in the ability of the living word of God to do all that he has in his heart, to build his church, and to keep us from falling though we are tested. Amen. The point of the book of Daniel is that God is awesome. He was awesome in his judgment against his people who had rejected his holy commandments. He was awesome in his mercy to Daniel and his three friends while they were in the shame of exile by saving them from a furious pagan king once and again. He was awesome in his presence when he came down from heaven like a man and stood with them in the fire and prevented them from being burned up. They were in less danger from the fire of the fiery furnace than from the fire and the brightness of his awesomely holy presence. The real miracle was that they, sinful men like us, stood next to God and did not die. The miracle was that the God who lives in unapproachable light came to them like a man, harmless, so to speak. Like all the books of the Bible, the book of Daniel is a book about God and about the Christ of God, who is our link between awesome God and sinful humans. The message of Daniel is that God carefully treasures and cherishes his beloved children, no matter where we are. And that it is not the rich and powerful or the pagan government who control our destiny, but we are in his hands, as are they. And he is able to use all of the evil circumstances, all of the circumstances in your life to bring about something better that you will grow to become more like the Son of God. While he protects his people, God's judgments against the... There's a typo. God protects his people from his judgments against the wicked. 
which are inescapable, for he judged the rebellious people of Israel with a judgment they could not escape. But in his mercy, he left some of them. And with the rubble that was left, building on the rock of Christ, God has been building a people who are called by his name, a holy temple made of living stones, even a mountain that is filling the whole earth to this day. The book of Daniel shows that God's mercy for the wicked who call out to him, like Nebuchadnezzar, is a better mercy than anyone on earth has ever given. So lest we raise our hand against God and say, why did you do that? Or you were wrong to judge them. It was too harsh. Or, or you should have had mercy on, on him or her. Rather, God's judgments are more right and well-founded. And God's mercy is better than your mercy. He had mercy on a man as idolatrous and proud, as quick-tempered and murderous as Nebuchadnezzar. And when, in his wrath, Nebuchadnezzar had tried to judge Daniel's three friends uh, at the fiery furnace, because God was not judging the three friends, Nebuchadnezzar's fire did not touch them. But for the Israelites who had rejected him, And as we are about to see for King Belshazzar, there was reserved a swift judgment. So let's review. Daniel begins in the year 605 BC. Um, A great pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, a mighty uh, leader of a new empire, sweeps through and to hold off the demolition of the entire city of Jerusalem, the capital of the civilization of God's people, supposed to be God's people, supposedly God's people, not really. To hold off their utter destruction, they say, the king and the nobles say, you can have our kids. Daniel and his three friends are given up to the enemy. They're torn from everything and everyone, literally everything and everyone they've ever known and loved. And they, at maybe age 15 or so, are carried off to Babylon and they're squished into the mold of what a Babylonian is supposed to be, which doesn't include the God of heaven. It includes lots of idols, eating and drinking food sacrificed to idols, eating the unclean things forbidden at that time in the law of God. And Daniel and his three friends say, Our country is under judgment for doing this for generations. I don't think we can do this. And they make up their mind to not defile themselves with the king's food and wine. God is pleased and he has mercy on them. And he supernaturally, in a span of 10 days, makes them better looking than every other like young person in the whole, in the whole area. So this is like an awesome transformation. So you see all these commercials for Maybelline and L'Oreal and Garnier Fructis and all these things. Like none of those things, like all of the beauty treatments in the world couldn't have accomplished this. No amount of makeup could have done this, but God changed their appearance and it was obvious that God was with them and in them. And furthermore, as they continued to train and learn the language and literature of the Babylonians, God gave them, God made them smart, God gave them wisdom, and God even gave Daniel the ability to understand other people's dreams and visions. 
bang. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than everybody else. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's how chapter one ends. That's, that's not a hope-filled sentence. It's saying Daniel's in exile for like the rest of his life, Right? the entire duration of this Babylonian empire. Multiple kings are going to come and go, and Daniel's going to be stuck there. We're going to see soon that it's going to get worse. Chapter 2, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled. He called everybody in. He said, tell me what I dreamed, and then tell me what it means, or else I'll rip your arms off, and I'll plow your houses into rubble. And can anybody tell the guy what he had just been dreaming? No. But Daniel said, uh, just let's, let's set a meeting and uh, let's appoint a time and then I'll come and tell you. And so he goes home and he tells his three friends, let's cry out to God for mercy. And they do. And somehow, in the incredible stress and pressure of that time, he's able to fall asleep. And, and as he sleeps... God reveals in a vision of the night what the other guy had dreamed and what it meant and showed him that it was a vision of what God was about to do with him and the kings that would come after him. And God was reassuring Daniel and his friends, oh Daniel, you're far away from everything you know and love, but you, the times, the seasons, the politics, the politicians, all of this is in my hand. And Daniel worshiped. And he said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. It's like God is the source of light and energy and life. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel wakes up, he runs in, and he says, don't kill him. Like, I can tell you the interpretation, and he tells the king the interpretation. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the king had dreamed of this giant statue and it had a head of gold and then the next section was silver and then bronze and then iron and iron and clay. And it was a symbol of what God was doing in the world, what God was doing in politics for the next 500 some years. And Daniel looks this mighty and proud king in the eye and he says, you are that head of gold. Does that go to his head? Oh, yeah. He might have been thinking, wow, there's this like super mighty God that's, I guess, the king of the gods, and he has showed who in the whole world? Me, that I am the head of gold. I am the head of gold. 
And so his next action, chapter three, is to go out and build himself a giant statue. It's gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and he uses it as a teaching tool, an object lesson, and he calls all the governors and and leaders and magistrates of the surrounding lands, everybody in his entire huge empire, which included many countries, and he says, this is the dream I dreamed. Um, I and my kingdom are the head of gold, but I'm not going to last forever. Um, Another kingdom uh, inferior to mine is going to come after me, and then a third kingdom, and then another kingdom that's going to like crush and smash everything. And and then God's kingdom is like a rock, and it's going to smash it and blow the statue up, and it's going to be a become a mountain that fills the whole earth. Praise God! That's what he should have said. Instead, he builds a giant statue, and it's made of or covered with gold. It's about six stories tall, and he calls all the leaders of these uh, of towns, villages, and and all of the countries under his realm to come and bow down to this statue that, just a hunch, looks like him. So he says, you're going to hear some music, you're going to bow down, or else I'll throw you and burn you alive. They do it. So Nebuchadnezzar, in his might and grandeur and pomp and pride and a little bit of his wrath, leads the... It, what, what might be called the known world, although there are, there's another side of the world, but um, he leads the world as he knows it in worship of a big hunk of metal. That is such a, a slap like towards God's face. That is such an insult. And God is greatly displeased. So when Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are, are called up, they're, they're tattled on and by people who want their jobs probably and, and they're, they're called up and they come before the king and, and they're like, we don't have need to answer you in this matter. Uh, our God is able to save us, but even if he does not, we will not bow before you, statue. Your, your statue, O king. Like, how can you be bold in the face of this tyrant? You can probably feel the heat of the fire. He orders it heated seven times hotter. He throws them in, or rather some of his strong soldiers throw them in and they get burned alive. And Daniel and his three friends are, Nebuchadnezzar looks and he, and he sees not three, but four in the fire. And the fourth looks like a son of God. And somehow, in the presence of this God-man come down from heaven to assure them that he is in control over all these things and to comfort and save them in their distress, in the presence of the mighty God, they are not consumed. And they're not consumed by uh, Nebuchadnezzar's fire either because his wrath was null and void. It is God's judgment that stands And God might use a pagan king like he recently had with Nebuchadnezzar to judge God's errant people. So do they get burned? No. Um, Last night, Stephen came over to my house. We had a wonderful time. We cooked. We cooked a multi-course meal over the fire in the backyard. And um, my... hair on my hand is singed. And after I showered this morning, I could still smell smoke on my mustache. Um, these guys had no singeing on their hair or clothes. They're, they didn't smell like smoke. They were completely within the 
com the ultra safe envelope and shield of protection of the presence of God and the pleasure of God for them. And when we are in, when we are in his hand and we are, he is able to protect us from all harm. He is also able to, like Jesus who suffered great harm, walk with us through harm, even great harm, and come out the other side with us. And we may be confident that whether he does this one or whether he does that one, we have no need to be afraid that God has abandoned us. He has not. So Nebuchadnezzar, as God is drawing him to faith, God who is rich in mercy, Nebuchadnezzar who is rich in rage and rich in threats and torture and in violence and oppression of the poor, Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. He rises up in haste. He, he sees this God-man there and he, he yells at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out. And, and he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his messenger and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall have their arms torn off and their houses bulldozed, for there is no other God who can save, who is able to rescue in this way. And then he promoted them. Chapter 4, which we got to last week. Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. It's a dream of this sort of uh, mighty... Uh, unusual tree, unusual that it's like the only tree in the forest, that if you were to compare the forest to this tree, the forest would be like like low-mown grass, and this would be like, you know, some sort of uh, mighty cypress or mighty redwood or something. It's a huge and a beautiful tree, and its top actually goes up to the sky. Its leaves are beautiful. And as Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, of course, he calls in his magicians and his enchanters, his astrologers, and his Chaldeans, and nobody can tell him what this dream means. And then he calls in Daniel, who he's grown quite fond of, I think, and who has become a counselor and even a friend to them and has surely been witnessing to him about God. He calls in Daniel, and he's explaining to Daniel what he dreamt, but he doesn't understand it. And he continues, there was this awesome tree and like every bird and animal had fruit and shelter under its branches and it was, and it was beautiful. Biggest, like the tree like reached everywhere. And then this messenger of God comes down and commands that its limbs be ripped off. Kind of ironic, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> and that its leaves be stripped off the branches, its beautiful leaves be stripped off and the tree be laid bare. A sort of embarrassed and naked tree, so to speak. And that it be cut down. And that its, its stump and its roots, the only part of it that's left, be bound with the strongest metal on earth at the time, iron and bronze. This tree ain't growing back. For times, 
for seven times until seven times pass over it until you know that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and gives them to anyone he pleases, unquote. And that, Daniel, said Nebuchadnezzar, is what I dreamed. Now tell me the interpretation. Daniel is dismayed and he says, oh, I wish this dream were for your enemies and its interpretation for those who hate you. And like he had recently looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, you are that head of gold. Now he says, you are that tree. Nebuchadnezzar, like all of us until God assists us to repent and opens our eyes and heart to be enlightened to what he's been showing us all along without also opening our mind to understand, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get it. He doesn't repent. A year goes by, and then he's out there on the roof of his palace, and by the way, it's a great palace in the greatest city of the world, with walls high and thick and impregnable. A beautiful city filled with temples to foreign gods, and there, like a strutting rooster, Nebuchadnezzar comes out and he says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built with my mighty hand and for the glory of my majesty? (laughs) And at that moment, a voice falls from heaven and says, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, three strikes you're out. It's it's all been taken away from you. And Nebuchadnezzar is cut down in his pride until he is walking on all fours like an animal and his fingernails grow long and gross and his hair grows as long as the feathers of an eagle. How long is that? Anyway, he's out there in the fields for some time with the mind of an animal and his intelligence and political and military genius is reduced to thoughts like, Oh, and finding greener grass and finding water. And somehow God preserves his life even though he ate grass or maybe God gave him grain. But God sustains him in this humiliated and humbled estate. And then all of a sudden he musters up his faith and he says, okay, I'm gonna become a Christian. I'm gonna get saved. He goes down to the altar and he says, I've sinned. Nah. God restores his mind and instantly he understands because God made him understand. Because it's the mercy of God that brings us to repentance. God makes him understand that it is the Most High who sets up kings and who removes kings. And his glory and his place is restored to him and, and his counselors and his nobles seek him, put him back on the throne, bring him in, and he has as much or more majesty as before, it seems. And he writes a letter, and now Nebuchadnezzar, the great evangelist for idolatry, becomes the great evangelist for this king of kings. And he spends, I don't know how many millions it cost him to write a letter and send a message by courier and horse and proclaimer and announcer to every part of his whole kingdom. First, he had gathered them to worship at this sort of Tower of Babel, this Babylon, this image of Nebuchadnezzar, um, this idol. And now he isn't telling everybody to come here and listen to him. He is going out to them. And he is having this message of what just happened. You see, he writes a letter describing the entire account of the dream, Daniel's interpretation, Daniel looking him in the eye and saying, like, repent, 
You know, the judgment of God is near. Maybe perhaps there'll be a lengthening of your prosperity and then of his humiliation, of his being stripped bare. Like he's writing these things to his subjects. That's like utter embarrassment in a probably a shame-based culture. Like, but he doesn't care about that anymore. He's just not so into his glory anymore. He could kind of care less, but he insists that this God is not just... If you, if you say something bad about him, I'll tear your arms off. Now he's gotten to in faith. Like, everybody, look at how wonderful and lovely God is. Look at how great he is. Look at how small I am. So that's chapters one through four. And Nebuchadnezzar at the end praises and honors him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as like nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and, all his, way, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. If God went to such great lengths to humble Nebuchadnezzar and to draw him to repentance and salvation, to what length is God willing to go to humble me, to humble you in our pride? Either he's already done it or he's going to have to do it. We all have to walk through that door of humiliation, of, of being humbled under the merciful hand of God who intends to exalt us and bring us into his glory and even make us somehow look like his glorious son. And that's what he is doing. So Nebuchadnezzar lives, he rises to power, he's humbled, he's exalted, he dies. Decades pass. Daniel, who was a teenager, uh, is now uh, probably, um, he's, he's an old man. He's probably maybe 80, 80 something years old now. And in that time, from 605 BC when he was taken as a teen to uh, the 580s BC, horrible things have happened in Jerusalem. There's been a great slaughter. It's been like animals being led to the slaughter and just killed. Young, old, women, children. Almost everybody is dead. Those who aren't are exiled and, and sent out as slaves and whatnots. Jerusalem is burned. The temple of God is destroyed. Daniel experienced the humiliation of being carried away along with the dishes, the, the cups and the bowls, the things, the, the articles of gold and silver that were from the house of God used in the worship of God. And Nebuchadnezzar in his earlier years had exalted Nebuchadnezzar's God against the God of Israel by saying, take your God stuff and put them in the house of my God. And there they have sat for these decades. And for Daniel, while things were bad before, though God was with him, with him and merciful to him and gave him a high position, he's still in exile. And that's still a really bad thing to Daniel. He's living in shame. In the meantime, 
everybody back home dies pretty much. Daniel's still in exile. What's it going to take to reassure this guy that God still loves him? This man who's experienced such great loss. Daniel's also lost his job. He's been demoted and forgotten. He's no longer a chief advisor to the king or, or wise man interpreter of dreams. He's just a guy somewhere in Babylon. And here in chapter five, we begin, King Belshazzar, who, by the way, is probably not related to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, when it says, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, that probably means Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor. Belshazzar might have even been one of, uh, one of the generals at the time. Um, it's possible he was a pretty successful general uh, who was kind of in charge of Babylon while the king was away building more pagan temples. Hard to say. Um, History gets patchy, and what we aren't told in the scripture is uh, not certain. So when we read historians of the time, we, we have to read it with a little bit of a critical eye, wondering if that's entirely true. But we do not need that with the scripture because God is able to preserve them, and God is able to tell the truth. So King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. First of all, that's a big room. Second of all, there's money flying around like, like, like paper, like, like the wealth of his kingdom is being spent in this extravagant party. But stop right there. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue? A kingdom is coming after yours that is inferior to yours. At this time in history, the Medes and the Persians are building an empire, and they are at the very gates of Babylon. In fact, this night, the Medes and the Persians, their general is upstream from the giant river, the Euphrates, that flows right through Babylon, right under its ultra-thick and tall, impregnable walls, providing fresh water to them. They could have withstanded a siege for years. They had everything they needed. King Belshazzar, even if some foreign general had come to attack his city, he really had nothing to worry about. That's what he thought. And in his exaltation, he's throwing this extraordinary party. I think there are only two feasts or parties in the scriptures that rival this one. There's the feast in the book of Esther, and then of course there's the feast we'll be at in the book Revelation. So somewhere upstream, the historians tell us, that enemy general has dammed up the river. And he's marching his troops and they're going to march right under the wall. They're going to march right in. But Belshazzar, like the Jebusites taunting Jerusalem centuries before, had said, the blind and the lame could, could fight you guys off and keep you from coming up in here. But sure enough, David climbs up the water shaft and he conquers the blind and the lame and makes the capital city of the Jebusites, Jerusalem, the capital of the once great Israelite kingdom. Now Jerusalem has been destroyed. Its fortress breached. King Belshazzar is in great peril. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded 
that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought in, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. He's thinking, forget God and God's I'll drink from those. These are vessels that are used to worship gods that the people regarded as greater than them and they're praying to these gods. And so they've got gold and silver vessels and stuff in part of their pagan worship. And now, but these are God's vessels that have been consecrated by prayer and by the priests. And they're just sitting there in the pagan temples and Belshazzar is like, I need those, bring them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What? You're worshiping rocks. You're worshiping minerals. You're worshiping lumber. What? Belshazzar, like Nebuchadnezzar, starts out bad. But God, in his mercy, worked with Nebuchadnezzar patiently for years, probably. Belshazzar, is he going to get it? It's not looking good for him now. It's like everything that's right side up is turned upside down in his thinking. He's the one who should be worshipped. He's in great danger, but he feels totally safe. And, and he's like, I'm, I'm in such safety, I'm going to just party. And in this orgiastic party, they drank wine and worship like the gods of, of minerals and metals of the earth and things. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. Where did we see a king's color change earlier? Nebuchadnezzar. First, he was angry. I presume that means his face was like completely red or whatever. And, and then somehow the expression of his face changed and his color changed. So he got even angrier than that. This guy is like... Um, is like Nebuchadnezzar in that his color changes. We're going to see his color change again, even worse in a few moments. And his knees knock together and the joints of his hips become loose. He's freaking out. This mighty proud king throwing this mighty party in his impregnable fortress. The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. Have you ever been so upset and so afraid that you couldn't stand and you were like shaking, trembling with anxiety? This is like panic attack level. Then the king became frightened. I can't even imagine his level of fright. 
Then, the king, then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, who is probably the queen mother, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed in purple. What? Purple? Who could afford purple dye at that time? I think they made purple dye from like a kind of shellfish. It was incredibly labor-intensive and expensive. So people would have had clothing of various colors, drab and bright, but nobody had anything purple unless you were like the rich, rich, rich. What an offer. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, 
have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, in whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Can you just see Darth Vader when one of his uh, kind of power-hungry generals comes in before him and is like, we're not doing that. Like, I'm in charge here. And before he finishes his first or second sentence, he's going, <laughs> and Darth Vader's over there doing this with his fingers. God is not like Darth Vader. Amen. <laughs> the breath of all these kings is in God's hands. And those he is a righteous judge and not a vengeful or a wicked king, Belshazzar's breath was in his hands. And Daniel continues, Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, tekel, and parzen. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. If you see in your heart that your heart is filled with pride and critical thoughts of others, cry out to God. Cry out to God and he will have mercy on you and he will humble you and it will hurt. But he's able to humble you when you can't humble yourself. That's the thing about being human. Oftentimes we find ourselves in the position where we see the pride of our heart, but we just can't get from proud to worship. And you can't worship when you're proud. You think your worship's going up, but you're really, it's like it's coming right back at you, right? Right in your golden, shining face. Hmm. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, and he gives it to anyone he wills. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It pleased Darius. Okay, we have three kings. We've seen Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen his rise to greatness, his humiliation, and his offering of worship to the Lord, true worship to the Lord. We've seen Belshazzar. Thunk. Here's another one. Here's our last king, Darius. What's he going to do? All of this is going to happen to him too, isn't it? He's going to meet God supernaturally. And Daniel will be the agent and the prophet of God's visitation. 
it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Is Daniel forgotten? I doubt it. When the army marched in, who's, being clo- who's sitting there in a purple robe? Hard to overlook that guy. So he probably interviewed him and checked him out to make sure he didn't get missed if he was worthy of a position of responsibility. Um, Belshazzar had missed him. He set over the kingdom 120 satraps and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Like Nebuchadnezzar, Darius had grown fond of Daniel, rightly so. He was a good man. He was filled with the spirit of God. Well, how did everybody else feel about that? Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement. They plotted and came to the king and said to him, this is like a replay of what happened in Nebuchadnezzar. O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the precepts and the satraps, the counselors and the government governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition, that's prayers, to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. You deserve it. Looking good, king. (laughs) Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document Sign here, please, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Here, I dipped your pen for you. You deserve this. He takes the bait. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks. What? He didn't like cry out weeping with fasting all the time. Somehow in Daniel's heart was thanks. Thanks to God in the midst of these things. And that's a pattern for us. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction? that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast. A 
according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He'd been duped. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. I imagine he called in quite a few lawyers to find out how to work around where the loophole was, but he had signed it. And the way things worked in that kingdom, once you signed it, it was sealed. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded. And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, Could we see the slide for that? The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you! And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. These were probably like lions that they kept starved until they had a prisoner they wanted to get mutilated alive. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. This king didn't want a trace of their heritage and their spiritual seed left in his kingdom. It was a little bit like when righteous King David resolved to rid Jerusalem of wicked people, which he pretty successfully did. It became like a haven of righteousness, a foreshadowing of the church, if you will. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. He's this close. He's getting it. Peace be multiplied to you. 
I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. That was where Nebuchadnezzar was right before the dream of the tree. You know, like, if you say anything bad about him, I'll get your arms ripped off. Is he going to make it? Is he going to have faith that saves? Is he going to worship the living God? Is he going to make a public profession that the Lord is his God and that he's going to worship him? He is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Praise God. Even pagan kings. It's like his heart was this stream of water flowing through a channel and the channel could go this way or that way. And, and if, you, if you turn the lever, it flips a little door and the king's heart goes that way or the king heart's, king's heart goes this way. The Proverbs say the king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord. He moves it wherever he will. Pray for your president, your premier, your king. So, this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The prophets tell us that when Cyrus came to power, he issued a decree that the people can go home now. Daniel is probably one of them. He would have been in his 80-somethings, could have even been in his 90s. I'm not sure I didn't check the dates. As a young man, he had seen the glory of what once was Solomon's temple, though a lot of the gold had been removed from it, Um, though it had been left untended and then repaired and then left untended through the years and idols had been put in it. He had seen the glory of the house of God, the, the visible symbol of the promise that God dwells with his people and manifests his presence among them and transforms the land if they will follow in his ways. And he had heard that it had been destroyed. If you go back and read Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see that those who were the first to return, they laid the foundation of the temple, they built it, and people worshipped when, you know, these people had lived in, ba- they were born in Babylon, they had grown up in Babylon, and now they're back in the land that their parents and grandparents told them used to be their land, and this is who you are, and this is where you belong, and your identity is all wrapped up in being where God wants you, and, and in God having a temple here, a house for his name, and you have to go to that house, and it hadn't yet been fully revealed that the, the mountain that was going to fill the whole earth is a house not built by human hands, that we are that house, and that the glory of God, even the Holy Spirit, was going to be poured out on all flesh, men, women, young, old, and that we would prophesy and have visions, and, and, that, and that we would do extraordinary things as the gospel goes into all lands and permeates all civilizations. And as these kingdoms through the, through the centuries are shattered, as the kingdom of God grows through pain and suffering in the midst of them, and as it fills the whole earth. It says in Ezra and Nehemiah that 
everybody, when, when, uh, when they like hung the doors and put, set up the, the new temple, which was not nearly as glorious as Solomon's temple. This is like relatively poor people building, building a church building. And what Daniel had grown up with was like the cathedral of, like what the greatest of cathedrals wishes it could have been. Ezra and Nehemiah say that the old, the old people who had been in Jerusalem, had been taken captive, had survived the entire exile, had come back under Cyrus, it says that they cried when they saw the new temple. They remembered its former glory. But the book of Daniel tells us that the glory of the kingdom of God was going to be spread out from these, this lumber and these stones into the people of God everywhere. As we read the story of the lives of Daniel and his three friends, and of the three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius, we see a revelation of who our God is. He is awesome in the brightness and the fire of his holiness. He is terrifying in his inescapable judgments against sin, yet tender in his repeated compassions for those who are helpless before God because we cannot earn God's approval, he has to give it to us as a free gift. He did it with Nebuchadnezzar. He did it with the remnant of Israel and he's doing it with us. And he's going to do it with families throughout the whole world in the hours, days, or generations to come. Part of the evidence of the gift is that our faith and the faith of those who came before us has not failed even though we are but dust in his hands and it seems that we are under the rule of those who rule and oppress us, like we heard of Martin Luther and the Pope at the time. But Luther was preserved. And our hope is that God will come to us again and again and show himself to be capable and faithful. And our hope is in God being faithful and God never changing, God using the circumstances he has given us to bring about the kingdom and the glory of God, and we will share in it. That's how we have hope in difficult circumstances. The themes of the book of Daniel are well captured in Romans chapter 8, which we read. Your homework is to read the book of Daniel, at least chapters 1 through 6, which we have covered, and now we've completed our study on Daniel, and then read Romans 8. Read Romans 8 until the word of God changes your experience of suffering into hope. The hope of seeing the face of Christ one day the reality of seeing Christ be revealed in both the faith and the actions of fellow Christians, although we got some problems, and the hope of being transformed from unholy to holy, both now in life and soon once for all, for all alike shall see his face. Amen.